Welcome to Jacked, another episode of Jack Theology. I'm Dr. Matt Murphy with my good buddy, Dr. Kevin Young. Here we go again. Good afternoon. Yeah, good to see yeah. you. Another, uh, another, another show, another journey. Um, yeah, if you're if you're watching, listening, feel free to share, check in, comment, um, review, like, subscribe, all those things that you do on the internets. Um, yeah, so this week thought we would dive into a little bit about Lent as we're recording this. Um, last night was we had our Ash Wednesday service. Um, and so I, hopefully a lot of, a lot of those listening are participating in Lent. It's a, it's a good, I think, rhythm to, to take hold of. If you're not like a church calendar person, um, you know, Lent is probably, probably one of the things that you probably should grab onto. It's just a healthy spiritual discipline to, to spend an extended time. The word Lent, I was doing some research yesterday for my sermon actually just simply means length so it's a lengthy fast um (laughs) and so it's a good a good a good habit to create uh to fast and um so um i hope people are joining uh, the rest of the church world in the linton fast yeah i Um, came i came late to the idea of lent and fasting and church calendar um i i I thought it was you know as a kid just that we didn't know or do any of those things but you know having grown up and matured and and listened and learned um, i think it was active avoidance honestly of lent and ash wednesday and and some of these um historic you know i mean certainly for hundreds and and some of these things for thousands of years you know the church has been doing these in in one form or another um and i'm not i'm not sure that that you know was always the best mindset to avoid maybe there were certain trappings of it you know that were valuable to to avoid or certain mindsets or or things but you know i guess to to use an idiom to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just completely avoid any of these rhythms Maybe wasn't maybe wasn't the best way to go, but I still, even as an adult, even though I um, have participated and have no issue with Lent or, or Ash Wednesday or any of those things, because I wasn't raised with those rhythms, it's still very difficult for me to find myself inserting myself into those rhythms, and um, kind of sad for that actually. Yeah, um, I kind of stumbled upon Lent. Honestly, I feel like. Um, Similar. I grew up similarly. We didn't participate in the church calendar. We were, you know, very much a free church, just kind of went with the wind on sorts of things. Um, and was I, I was a pa- I was pastoring and I was kind of leading the prayer ministry at our church. And so I scheduled a prayer service and it happened uh, coincidentally to fall on Ash Wednesday, our <laughs> first one. Yeah. I didn't realize it until um, people started coming. We had a lot of recovering Catholics or people that have switched tribes from Catholicism to our free church. And they told me, Oh, it's Ash Wednesday. Is this Ash Wednesday service? And so, um, and it was packed because <laughs> a lot of people had grown up with that tradition. And so I, I did more research on Ash Wednesday and, and that kind of began my journey. And I said, this is actually kind of a cool thing that I really didn't know anything about. Um, 
And so I started to practice. We, we continued that, that habit of having a prayer service on Ash Wednesday at the church I was at. Um, and then I began personally to do my own Lenten fast uh, over the time. I never actually got ashes on Ash Wednesday um, until recently, until just a few years ago. Um, I don't know why, but I think it was that uh, upbringing of like, those things aren't good, those things are bad, you know, so I had this twitch about it. But it's kind of a cool moment, like even last night as we're imposing ashes on folks and we, we preach uh, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ over people as they come. It's a, it's a good reminder as the whole idea is, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, we will, we will return, uh, kind of remembering our mortality and putting our full dependence upon Jesus, right. For life, uh, for our putting our hope in Jesus. Like that's the whole idea. It's, it's just kind of a beautiful thing that like we're coming to get ashes to recognize that we're mortal humans and we're, we're fallen and we need Jesus, right? We need a a rescue. We need a savior. Um, And so that's what we're doing. We're coming to put full dependence on Jesus. I don't know why we would be scared of that as a church. Um, It's just kind of a beautiful picture. Um, Well, you know, growing up, I mean, the the line was, uh, you you know, we don't participate in rites or, or we don't participate in these, these rhythms. It's not, you know, it's not the word you used, I think was free. You know, we're, we're a free church. You know, we don't we don't subscribe to this idea of this ritualistic mindset. Uh, and that idea of, I think, ritual was seen yeah. as being very um, negative and something that, that we should be against. And I think, you know, probably that goes back to a reaction with the Reformation to Catholicism and all these other roots and things. But then I'm like, we have our rituals. We have our our rhythms that we participate in, but you know, it's Valentine's day, you know, and banquets and, and honoring St. Patrick's day, you know, it's mother's day honoring, you know, the mom who has the most kids, the mom who's the youngest mom who drove the furthest to be there, you know, father's day. Well, we don't really do much for father's day, but you know, July 4th, (laughs) Memorial day, veterans day. And I'm not saying that any of those are are negative and the church shouldn't celebrate those things. But it was like, we had our rituals, we had our rhythms, we had our celebrations. And most of the ones that we were doing had literally zero spiritual, biblical or historical significance whatsoever. It was like we were avoiding all of these rhythms and rituals that had deep connections to, like you said, Ash Wednesday and repentance and and sin and and forgiveness and, and setting up this idea of of death to self and Easter being the resolution, the resurrection of that. We we had kind of rejected all of the spiritual rhythms for things that were American holiday calendar rhythms. And uh, it's kind of, you know, our church also said, you know, no creed but Christ. You know, we, we have no creeds. I'm like, actually, no creed but Christ is technically a creed. So, like, you you still have creeds. You still have statements yes. uh, that define yeah. your belief system. And it's like you also, you also are a ritualistic church, but you have just chosen to eschew, you know, the historic spiritual rituals and rhythms in order to take on ones that um, are Americanized and synchronized and most have absolutely zero spiritual significance whatsoever. And so I was like, 
at that point, yeah. maybe maybe I can celebrate Ash Wednesday. You know, maybe it's okay. Maybe I can participate in Lent. Maybe it's even as a non-denominational evangelical Protestant, maybe it's okay, if not better. Yeah, yeah. Well, the church calendar was the anti, you know, the opposite calendar of of. The- you know, yeah, it was what a, a reordering. Yeah. I think um, yeah. Schlermark or, yeah. or you know the guy who it was a reordering of life around a different calendar. It was saying you know culture has this calendar and this rhythm. You know those of us who have children who are in schools. You know your ebb and flow of life operates oh. as a family around the church. I mean around the school calendar and the sports yeah. calendar. And we have all of these other. Um, calendars in life, and you know, by having this church calendar rhythm, um, it's it's a forced reordering of of life that kind of forces us in these moments, these significant moments during the year, into into a different rhythm that is against you know the rhythm of the culture. In a lot of ways, it forces yeah. you you know to make a decision. As to where where and how you spend your time and 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 your life. And we say we're countercultural. We say we want to be countercultural and we don't want to be invest ourselves in the culture. But then with the rhythms and our rituals of holidays and things, we're we're all in to culture. But the church rhythms, no. Yeah. Yeah, I I always find it fascinating um, that a, a service like Ash Wednesday really confronts people because. Um, you know, it's midweek. You actually have to make a decision. Like we had to make a decision to keep our kids last night out of their sports activities for them to be at this Ash Wednesday. So we were confronted with the two calendars. Like, um, and so we just, we just had, you know, conversation with our kids. This is priority. We're going to tell your teachers, your coaches, you know, this is what we're doing as a family, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's healthy to, to have those confrontations in your own heart um, around the calendar. And then to refocus yourself, I think, around a calendar that points to Jesus. I think some of the failure of the church um, that had been practicing Lent and, and Ash Wednesday um, continually is they did a terrible job of explaining like what's behind the ritual. So I think a lot of people just don't understand like the whole point. It became, like the gospel. Yeah, it became rote. It became yeah. this what, I guess, this yeah. empty, you know, ritual that just you're you're just going through the motions. Yeah. And it's like, well, why do I only eat fish on Fridays? No meat and just fish, you know? It's like, well, the reason for that was that's what Jesus ate, right? Well, you know, historically, that's what we think he ate. And so we're just taking one day a week during this Lenten fast. We're just going to be, we're going to try to be exactly like Jesus on this day, right? That was the whole point. It was to connect you with Jesus. It wasn't so like, uh, you know, you're holier because you gave up meat for a day. It's, it, you know, it's, it was to focus people on Jesus. It was, that was the whole point of, of that is the whole point of Lent is to yeah, help everything, you everything spoke. Everything was a metaphor. Everything was, and everything was a metaphor, metaphor. Everything was an illustration of something in scripture. Yeah, you're right. The, the depth of the meaning behind these things was, was deeply biblical and deeply spiritual. Um, and I think that's a really, that's a great point is that whenever we stopped explaining the rites and the rituals and those things, it became motions that people went through that 
that, that led to no transformation. And so I, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the Reformation, the evangelical church of today, and, and they're, you know, pushing off in a lot of ways of these historic rhythms and rituals of the church. You, you know, I mean, I think... Um, I think an argument could be made that there was that there was a reason, a, a valid reason behind doing that. But um, I think that at the end of the day, the result of that is probably um, a far worse negative by avoiding these rites and rituals um, than just simply taking them on and, and teaching them and reshaping them. I, I think, you know... Um, Sure. Is it is it valuable for us to pick up a a rhythm or a ritual from 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago and just do it as though what worked 2,000 years ago is going to have the same impact today as it did then? Probably not. But, you know, why not find a way to talk about Repentance to talk about ashes, to talk about, you know, this line, um, dust, ashes to ashes and, and dust to dust. And, you know, where you came from is where you will return. You know, if, if some of those rituals don't fit your people or your context or a little difficult, okay. You know, don't impose ashes and a cross on the head if that's too far for you. Uh, but is there a way for you somehow to participate in this and still get across the, the, the value of the foundational teachings of this in some new and, and different way. And I think, yeah, sure. Uh, the yeah. church has re recreated, reframed, rethought uh, for, for its entire existence, rites and rituals and, and continues to do so. And that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good, a fair point. I think you don't have to fully, especially you're in free churches, evangelical churches, you don't have a highly structured liturgy. Um, yeah, get creative with it. I mean, we did after we saw like there was a craving for the Ash Wednesday Lent in our environment at a, you know, very evangelical church. We, we started to embrace that. Like, and we did our own kind of evangelical, you know, Lenten season in the years after that. And we're like, wow, people, there, there's something here. People like are, are gravitating towards it. So let's, let's do that. And so we had our own little things that we would do, which I think are good. They, you know, Hey, for the next 40, you know, 40 days of prayer, 40 days of reading scripture, you know? Um, so whatever I think do, you could put on something. That's the misconception too. It's like, and I try to encourage our people is like the Lenten fast <clears throat> could also be a putting on of something new. Um, like I'm going to create space every day to pray, you know, um, that could be your thing. It doesn't have to be, Oh, I'm going to give up chocolate, you know? Uh, so it could be, but it doesn't always have to be something like that. Um, so yeah. I well, yeah. I mean, it's a sacrifice, right? You yeah. know, I mean, it, it should be a sacrifice and sometimes taking something on as a sacrifice. Like yeah. I'm going to call my mom, you know, or, or my mother-in-law or, or my dad, you know, I'm going to be yeah. more communicative, you know, to my, you know, sometimes taking something on, you know, maybe, maybe a bit of a sacrifice. And so rather than giving something up, you're sacrificing, you know, by taking something on, um, the, and the, the whole thought behind the sacrifice was you're filling that time with uh, prayer. So you're, 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 you're giving something up by 
by taking on this sacrifice, whatever it may be, but then it also is driving you, hopefully, to every time you think about it or the time that you would have spent giving to that, you're now instead giving it to to prayer, which you know is why Lent was traditionally fasting, uh, literally food, fasting from something, is that time would be utilized instead um, to be spent in prayer in order to prepare you for the Easter vigil, you know, that's, that's coming up on the Saturday of uh, Holy week. But again, like you say, reframe it, take something, take something on something good. If the idea of just giving up chocolate or coffee or something, yeah, it it shouldn't be meaningless. Uh, It should be meaningful. And I would say spiritually meaningful. And if you're doing it in order to lose five pounds, over the, you, know, you, you may be doing it wrong. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you may yeah. have the wrong mindset uh, going into it. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not to reach your fitness goals. It's uh, it's to focus on your spiritual goals. Um, so that's important. And it yeah, I like how you said it, to prepare your heart for the Easter vigil. Um, it's to get it's to enter in really this 40 days and we have a hard time. This is also another reason why I think Americans have a hard time with it is it's partly to enter into sorrow, the sorrow of the pains that we've been dealing with. It's enter into the sorrow of our sin. Um, and, and not just sin. somebody, I heard this this week preparing for this. It's like, um, and it's not just like the sin of like immoralism, right? We think, well, I stubbed my toe and I cursed, So I got to ask forgiveness for, for cursing. It's, it's actually repenting of the sin of thinking you're God, you know, and putting your place on the throne of, of the divine rather than God. It's like that's, that's what you're repenting of. You're repenting of trying to control things. You're repenting of power trip, arrogance. Um, you're, you're not like the point is not to like, you know, find those ways in which you said a bad word and you have, or thought a bad thought and you have to repent of those. No, you're, you're, you're actually entering into the sorrow of thinking I, I can do a better job than God and repenting of that and allow God to be God in your life. Um, and then you're preparing your heart for that Easter celebration. And so if you could enter into that sorrow, those pains, um, I think that's important. It's important rhythm, uh, that we miss because we Americans, we just want to celebrate. Right. Um, I find it funny here living in New Jersey that, the New York giant, it's like had an incredible season, right? But they lost, right? All but one team loses, you know? And so they're mad. Like we got to fire this guy. I got to move this guy on, you know, Da-da-da-da. and it's like, what? You know, you just had a ridiculous, awesome season, but you know, um, we failed. So we got to move on. We don't want to feel that again. Um, and so I think a good pra- it's a good practice, a good spiritual discipline to, to enter into that and allow Jesus to bring healing to you, to allow Jesus to give you hope, to give you joy, to give you contentment. Um, you know, as you know, I've been going through, through it this week. It's been an interesting week, uh, for me personally. And I've just been, that's been my prayer is like, God, give me like just contentment and peace uh, through this. Um, and for the most part he has, I mean, there's been times where you get emotional, you get anxiety and all those things, but, for the most part, I, I have re- I have received that, and then you can walk, you know, more fully in joy, 
in the midst of trials, no matter what comes your way, because you have that kind of peace um, about you. And so Lent's an opportunity for you to to enter into that and receive that gift. Um, and so I, I, I would encourage people to do that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, the only other thing that I was thinking of is, is there is power in recognizing and realizing, I think, that we're we're not alone. And, and Lent, sometimes I think, you know, some of the resistance that I feel and that I see is that, you know, if you're fasting, you're on your own. You know, if you're praying, you're on your own. The Ash Wednesday imposition of ashes uh, for a lot of folks is, is kind of a solitary um, solo thing. And I, I do think there is value in, in recognizing, you know, that, that at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's your relationship with Christ and, and you bear, I bear a, a sense of, of personal responsibility for, for how that goes. But also, you know, whenever scripture talks about, um, salvation, whenever the Bible talks about redemption and these things, it, it is either always or almost always, I'll, I'll kind of pull back on that a little bit since I haven't looked at it for a while, but it's in the, in the context of community. Uh, and, and there is, you know, I think this friction between the idea of American rugged individualism and what the Bible spiritually really teaches, and that is that salvation and transformation rises and falls on the community. And a lot of times we bring, I think, this individualism into the church and into our spiritual rituals and realms and rhythms. And it's it's not so healthy. You know, you're doing devotions, you're praying on your own, you're you're taking communion as a solo act. And anything that we can do to to bring community, togetherness and relationships into that, I think, is a value. It's why I think small group Bible study is preferable in a lot of ways to personal Bible study. I'll probably get emails because of that. But there's this refinement, you know, that comes in in this community and in this conversation that we don't get, you know, alone and one on one. Taking communion, is there value in taking communion regularly and often alone? Yes. But for anyone who's ever actually done that as a family, you know, unit or done that like together at the same time, you you kind of see that there is there's a different, I think, dynamic and it's transformational whenever, you know, as a dad or as your mom, you're giving your kids, you're serving your kids the communion elements rather than just receiving alone, you know, in a single file line. So all of that to say, whenever we come to Lent, there's this tendency, I'm giving up chocolate, I'm giving up coffee, I'm, I'm praying alone. There's a tendency to kind of see Lent as this solo journey towards Easter. It wasn't originally designed to be that way. Uh, and so, you know, originally this 40 days was the last leg of the race of a three year journey of converts to Christianity in the early church. And so they had this three year, almost like AA sponsorship situation where somebody would sponsor a new Christian, would follow them. They would be catechized and taught, you know, the basic foundational elements of the faith over three years and the last 40 days of the journey before Easter was super intense and they would sacrifice and give things up. And it was this final spiritually transformational journey 
before the Easter vigil, they take communion, first communion on Easter Sunday, and then would be officially fully accepted into the body of the church and, and the body of Christ, as it were. So Lent kind of became this thing because other Christians were looking in on this and they're like, well, every year annually, these 40 days, you know, we're seeing these new Christians really focus intentionally on their faith. Well, that's really cool. Let's join them in doing that. And so it became this church rhythm where, you know, the church was kind of like, wow, this is really kind of a good thing for all of us. It's a reminder to us of our journey ourselves when we went through that 40 days. And so let's just keep doing it, you know, on the sidelines as fans, helping cheer those on who are coming into the faith. So I think if we're able to, in our minds, especially as evangelicals, as non-denominational folks, people who didn't grow up with this, if we're able to kind of frame this as a, this is not just me giving up chocolate, but this is me participating alongside uh, new Christians, old Christians, the body of Christ now today worldwide, also throughout history and time. And it's also an opportunity for me to refocus myself on my spiritual journey and my transformation and kind of push aside these other rhythms that have crowded out my year and intentionally focus here. And then I think it's a window or maybe better said it's a door for um, those of us who aren't liturgical or who may even be anti-liturgical to see some value in this and to see participation with others who do see value in it as being a sign that that we're with you. Yeah, that's good. I I liked uh especially the individualism thing. I think uh yeah, like there's no personal devotions in the Bible, right? Um devotions were done together in community. I mean, read Acts 2, everything was done in community. Um that I think that's why um, the Catholic Church, you know, I think they made mistakes um, in how they implemented it, but they, you know, had that rule that only the priests could read the scriptures. And I think the heart behind it was that we're reading the scriptures in community because they're designed to be read in community. Um, and we've kind of taken that to the other extreme that, you know, we read our Bibles in private and like whatever it means to me is what it means, right? Um now, fortunately, because of technology, we have access to a community of thought, like even by ourselves, you could sit on your phone and then read what other people in the, the faith community over the centuries have said about those passages. And I think anyone um, should be doing that, like to not just read it, you know, for yourself, but to see what a broader perspective has has said about the text. But then even more like to your point is to enter into community. Um, like what is your actual local community? How does that passage, how does those scriptures, how do the, the prayers hit that community? Because it, it might be a different than if you're just flying solo. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that beginning. I didn't know that. So I learned something new today about the beginning of Lent. I love that they ended their journey that way. Um, and it was a, a way to stand in solidarity um, and I couldn't help but think too, like we Americans, like we see something different in, in someone's faith 
um, and it could be any faith, but specifically even Christians, it's like, well, just because they do something different to me doesn't make them wrong. Like, and that's what I grew up thinking, like, well, because they do something different, they're wrong. Why can't we just stand in solidarity? Like, even if we're not part, that isn't part of our tradition, um, you know, they're, they're people seeking God, they're people seeking Jesus. Um, why not just stand in solidarity? Why speak out against it or, or say that's wrong? And, and I, I see that at times in different things. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a good word. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. You know, this might really blow some minds of people who are watching, but you kind of hear Catholics do First Communion, um, baptism, these kinds of things. Well, you know, a part of that 40-day final, you know, leg of the race, the journey, you know, obviously they hadn't been baptized yet. They hadn't actually experienced communion yet. Um, very early, within like a hundred years or so, uh, after you know Jesus ascends, the church uh, allows those you know new converts, um, those new catechumens, you know from catechism. They were called catechumens, people who were being catechized over those three years um, into worship and into the meal. But they would the doors were closed for communion. They were not allowed. They were essentially said, all right, uh, you have to leave, you know, unless you've, unless you've, uh, become fully a part of the part of the church. So they'd have to leave. But, you know, so this end of the 40 days, you know, they're working towards the Easter vigil, uh, Saturday, uh, they, you know, are kind of led into darkness into the church. Um, they are baptized then at sunrise on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, once they finish that 40 days of Lent, naked, <laughs> facing east. And uh, then, you know, the worship begins after all of those folks are, are baptized and uh, they experience their first communion on Easter Sunday. And so, you, you know, whenever you, I, I think it's hard for us as those of us who are evangelicals uh, or, or who were raised in Protestantism that, that kind of rejected Catholicism. Uh, th- this isn't this isn't Catholic. This idea of Ash Wednesday uh, and of Lent and and this this journey through this is this is our history. This is where we began as well. And I think whenever we kind of understand the reasoning behind these rites and rituals and what they were trying to teach, uh, they didn't have the Bible for three hundred and fifty years, four hundred years, and as you said, they didn't have it in their hands. You know. Until until the Reformation, you know, until the invention of the printing press, and so yeah, the Bible comes along essentially in 350, but every church didn't have a Bible, you know. Only, Bibles were only in cathedrals, you know. Even your own local pastor in your parish didn't have a Bible in order to read from for a long time, and so they taught the faith through these practices and through these rituals. And so I, I think if we're able to re-educate ourselves, as you said, as to the meaning of these things, then these become tools to teach ourselves and our kids and our youth and our community about faith without them having to read the Bible. You know, so many people have kind of, I think, rejected the Bible in a lot of ways, um, or, or have this difficult or uneasy relationship with the Bible. Frankly, that's Christian's fault for using the Bible to beat people over the head so often rather than inviting people into a relationship with Christ and with the church and with this sacred text. 
we've used it to beat them out of a relationship with the church and with the sacred text. And so, you know, the Bible is not as valuable a tool as we might think it is for evangelism and for transformation because of the way we have wielded it wrongly. But these spiritual practices, these rites, these rhythms are a way to teach repentance and transformation and sin and redemption and holiness and salvation. Maybe better in some ways and for some people than the scriptural text alone can. Wow. Preach. Um, yeah, I agree. We are, we, we've, we, you know, we've lost you identified many ways in which we, we are ritualistic beings. Um, and so I we are, think right? The toilet paper has to be on the I, roll the same way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I believe we all use the the toothpaste, you know, in in the yeah. same way. You know, we are we're ritualistic beings. You're right. And and why not have ritual uh, that's connecting us and pointing us to Jesus? Um, yeah, I, I obviously I'm I like liturgy. I love liturgical environments. Um, and so I think it's important. I really do. I mean, James K. Smith talk. you know, he has, if, if you're out there listening and you haven't read James K. Smith's um, Desiring the Kingdom, I believe it's called, um, he talks about this and how our hearts are formed by ritual. Um, actually, our hearts are formed so much that we fall in love with things. And there's, and marketers, he compares, he, he, he kind of, shows like marketing campaigns here in, in America um, and how they spend billions of dollars every year, trillions probably, trying to create rituals for you to fall in love with their product. And it works. Um, even how they design stores and force you to walk different ways where you, they want your eyes to go. Um, it's all calculated um, and it's all created to create a ritual um, so you love their product and you buy it. And, and so why don't we do similar things with the, with Jesus and the church has done it for, for years, uh, for thousands of years. And so, uh, us in the free church world, we've gotten away from that. We've got, we've, we've steered away, um, from those things, although we create our own rituals and you highlighted a lot of that earlier. Um, but we've stayed away from the rituals of the church for thousands of years. And it's like, why would we throw those things out? Um, so yeah, I think ritual is good. Creating new rituals is good. And I love, you know, it could, you know, it definitely will teach you. So, um, yeah, my kids, they learn all sorts of things from the rituals and liturgies that we, uh, we have here at our church. Um, which I think that was what your dissertation was about, right? Reaching the next generation. <laughs> it was. It was. Maybe that's why I was shouting so much about. <laughs> I, yeah. No. I'm. I'm. I'm passionate. I'm passionate about it. Um, yeah. It's. It's a. It's a phenomenal teacher, and you know it has worked. You know, in. In cultures more difficult even than the one, one we're in you know, effectively for 
for 2000 years, you know, it's been, it's been vetted. And so, and, and, you know, adolescents, kids, kids love ritual and goals. I, I mean, the <laughs> becoming a teenager, you know, 13, where you hit that number, the sweet 16 birthday party, uh, the, the driver's license, you know, the, the learner's permit, the 18th birthday, the, the ability to vote, you know, 21 first drink, you know, their lives are measured by these rhythms and by these rituals and, and rites of passage, you know, I mean, we have these in the, the secular world, these, these rites of passage that kids long for and are excited about and are big deals. And we celebrate those rites of passage, getting a car, you know, being able to vote, you know, registering for the draft, uh, maybe not as much celebration around that one, but it's a, it's a thing. It's a rite of passage, the sweet 16 birthday party and the church uh, by and large has just completely rejected all of its rites of passage for kids and for adults, but for kids, especially, um, it's it's a it's a negative thing because rites of passage are powerful in that age group and uh, what those look like I don't know but I think it can be and should be contextual whatever makes sense in your church in your denomination you know in, in your theological framework a a recapturing of what rites of passage would be beneficial to moving our adolescents, moving our people towards a faith that transforms them and that they own. And don't just let it be catechism. You know, in the evangelical church, maybe apologetics is the closest word that we have for catechism. You can't just let it be pounding indoctrination into their head about belief systems. You know, it has to be broader it has to be broader than that. It has to be hands-on. It has to be missional. It needs to be um, much more complex and diverse than than just doctrine. Doctrine can be one of those things, though. But what are the rites of passage? And they are powerful tools. And whatever those things are in your context, put them in place as a senior minister or as somebody who's a leader enforce it, you know, champion it, and then celebrate those rites of passage. There needs to be celebration in kids, adolescents. They need, they need to be celebrated. And so, you know, the world celebrates them for a lot of things. Uh, the church should as well. Hmm. Yeah. Right on. Right on. We do, uh, we do confirmation, we do communion kind of, you know, kind of like a first communion. Um, we do, yeah, we do graduation Sunday for our kids here at the church. Um, yeah, those are important. We give them a Bible all along the way too. Um, it's very uh, reformed of us, I think. Um, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's great, you know, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, the Bibles that I used in that time period of my life are, um, are meaningful even still now to me today. Now Bibles are a dime a dozen, but I'll tell you right here on this shelf behind me, right over right over there, uh, one of those shelves has about four or five Bibles from when I was in high school, and they are in Ziploc bags. <laughs> that's how that's how precious uh, they are to me. Uh, and so I, I I think there's something powerful in 
giving a kid a Bible, especially when connected to a rite of passage, especially when connected to some goal or something that they met or that, that they did. Um, and if you're going to do that, churches, give them a nice Bible. don't give them the paperback you know gift award bible like like yeah yeah people in your congregation people in your congregation will give towards bibles in way like you you will never have a problem fundraising like like for nice bibles you know i hundred dollar two hundred three hundred dollar bibles sometimes uh you, you can fundraise dozens of of those easily in your congregation because that gets people it gets people motivated to know that kids are, are doing something to deserve them and to be able to have that in their hands even today is 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 powerful yeah that's good i i've noticed as a father like putting my kids through ri- these rituals and then even our own personal rituals at home um i'm fascinated like they don't read their bibles regularly I don't know if I should say that as a pastor, but what I have noticed from my kids is they know the Bible because they've learned it through um, how we tell the stories, through the rituals. And I've always been, I'm I'm always fascinated when I get them in a room and I'm teaching a class and my kids are on it. They, they, they know the answers. They've thought it through. It's like in, it's in them. And I think, and I've had, I had that aha moment recently and I'm like, I, I'm a hundred percent. It's because of the rituals they've entered into and it's just become part of their life. This is just who they are. Just as if as an American, you, you know, Valentine's day is on February 14th, you know, you know, all of these things that we do in America, you, you don't have to have a book to read them, right? You just know. And I, that's what I've been seeing with my kids. And so I think it, it is definitely very powerful. So good. You've 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 exhausted my knowledge. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I got nothing left to say, Senator. <laughs> so yeah, um, where are we at on time? Uh, we've got we're forty uh, minutes in, man. All right, so we could talk a little bit about the SBC. Um, oh, are you, are you sure you want to go there? Talk about talk about broken oh. liturgy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, liturgy. Whenever uh, we think of liturgy, though, I, I mean, uh, I guess there is kind of a whenever we think of liturgy. Oftentimes, as evangelicals, we think of Catholicism, we think of Episcopalian, you think of people in in robes and you know incense, and you know every church has its own liturgy every church has its own way of of doing things and the SBC is um in the conversation right now right i guess for its liturgy not allowing women in certain roles of leadership in their liturgy and for allowing or dismissing or, or not maybe i should say not taking an perceivably, perceptually not taking an equally strong approach to sexual abuse and men who have been involved in sexual abuse, pastors who have been involved in sexual abuse as they do with women in leadership. And so there's this 
conversation about this imbalance of focus and attention that is focusing a lot on women and pastoring and not so much on the other issue, which I guess is understandable, them not wanting to not wanting to pay attention to that. But, you know, this week, what was it? The credentials committee made a recommendation. <laughs> the floor uh, last June of the SBC convention recommended to the credentials committee that they review Saddleback Church for um, for putting a woman in the role of teaching pastor, just a title. But also, I'm sure she's filling that role as well. So the credentials committee this week recommended to the executive committee and the executive committee runs the Southern Baptist convention period, not the messengers, not the convention. The executive committee runs the convention. Um, they voted to reject, um, or to accept the recommendation, I guess, of the credentials committee that Saddleback, um, will no longer be credentialed as a Southern Baptist church will no longer be allowed to be affiliated as a Southern Baptist church because of that. So they have the opportunity to appeal. I have a hard time believing that they care enough to actually <laughs> appeal, but I don't, I don't, it'll be, I don't know. I don't know what will, what will come of this, but um, there are thousands of women pastors in the Southern Baptist convention, thousands of women pastors. Uh, they're just called director. It, you know, they just change a word and do the same thing, and they are still women pastors. And so it's a joke. Uh, it's, it's a joke. Somebody posted on my wall just earlier today, well, you know, if they're over children's ministry or women's ministry, that's fine because they're not holding authority over men. I'm like, you're a foolish idiot because men serve as volunteers in children's ministry men serve in many capacities helping out in women's ministry functions so that women don't have to be they're still leading and having authority over men you're still trying to that's so misogynistic too like well uh, uh, you can't have any authority over a man come on and we still you know i mean we've had the conversation a couple of weeks ago about how these biblical passages have been woefully and in some places intentionally taken out of context. Um, yeah, I mean, need but it's not, I just, I don't, great job. I mean, I've been involved in the SBC. I was ordained in the SBC. I, um, I mean, I do think it's fair to say for some people, for some churches, for some pastors, it, it truly is about what they believe the Bible says. But I'm going to tell you, for most, it's not. Um, not anymore. They, um, they don't care what the Bible says. If the Bible said something different, they can't be convinced that the Bible says something different because foundationally, it's not about the inerrancy or infallibility of the Bible. Foundationally, um, it's about power and control and authority and misogyny and patriarchy uh, and the good old boys club, which the SBC leadership is a good old boys club and it's maintaining, it's about maintaining that. Yeah. Um, not for well, everybody, but, but at, at the end of the day, 
if we're there is not only a compelling but a valid the the, the argument on the opposite side of this is um, forgive me it's it's far stronger than the argument to be affirming for the LGBTQ community. I mean, the, the argument that women are not precluded from being pastors or from having authority isn't just strong. It's, it's, it's frankly to the point of being unquestionable um, yeah. when you really look at it. And to not do so, to not accept that, um, isn't isn't about biblical infallibility, inerrancy, or authority. It's about patriarchy and misogyny. Yeah, I think um, what we're seeing. I think there's two things I see. I, I look at these things. I mean, if you pastor long enough, you, you learn about organizational leadership, right? And I think you you hit on it too. I think it's about power. I mean, there there should be no naivety of of the church that they chose to make an example of right one of the largest churches in america probably the largest church in the sbc um rick warren easily the most famous christian pastor that's out there um they took him out right it's about power like he's he's voicing something that's different than what they want to voice um and so before he takes too many people with him let's get rid of him right there's this power and control but then also too, what we're seeing, I think, with um, with these organizations, these denominations, they have a choice right now culturally, um, and and it's all around us. Is do we insulate ourselves and circle the wagons um, on very awful traditional viewpoints, um, or do we or do we begin to actually read the Bible the way it should be read. We believe it should be read. Do we actually listen to women? Do we actually see the sin of, of our forefathers of misogyny and patriarchy and repent to that? Or do we try to hold on to what was? And I see a lot of these denominations making those decisions. Um, either they're, they're going to step out and repent of those things, those sins of the past, or they, or they become insular encircle the wagons and they start to remove people who don't agree with them. And I think we're seeing it all over the place, not just in the SBC. SBC is the most dynamic. Um, but I think that's what organizations do because there's so much change happening. There's a shift. Uh, you know, COVID is, has made people evaluate whether or not they're going to church. Like I read a stat recently that most churches are only recover, you know, have 20 to 30% of their previous, uh, you know, attendance coming back to church, churches are dying. Um, and so a lot of organizations either, either become entrepreneurial, like, and try to see, like to use business terms to, to find a new market, right. To, to enter into a new marketplace or they just cocoon themselves. Um, in the old. And so I think that's what we're seeing with these organizations. And it's sad because I think to me, when organizations do that, it's, it's kind of the beginning of the end. Um, and, and they lose influence and, uh, yeah, I think that's what's happening. It's, um, (laughs) it's, it's sad. It's sad to say, but I, I think you're, I think you're right. 
Um, it is it is all about organization and and the SBC sadly has you know they they have tended in the last few conventions especially to follow this political cultural line of of trying to be against culture uh, but are unable unwilling to see that that actually the decisions that they're making and the things that they're doing the language that they're using and when they talk about uh, racism, supremacy, sexual abuse, women, CRT, the word woke. If I hear a SBC person use the word woke unironically one more time, I might go insane. Uh, it's clear that there is a desire to, to cordon off space for... Um, for them that whether or not the space that they cordon themselves off in is is spiritual space is holy space is godly space is sacred space uh, i don't think that it matters I, I think it's about survival and this happens with institutions is institutions essentially become a person in the sense that that they take on personhood and we end up defending the institution at all costs this is what happened with sexual abuse it's you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention and why they've responded and reacted and, and handled it the way that they have is because, you know, the institution can't die in their mind. And and there is this, not just in the SBC, but, but in churches in general where you marry the mission with the church. And so you, you get this idea that, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that this can't die. And so you are willing to sacrifice integrity, you're willing to do the wrong thing, uh, you're willing to, at any cost, even if it is um, ethically, morally, or legally wrong, at any cost, you're willing to uh, protect the institution from, from harm. And it, this is what we see happening with the SBC on this, and, and it's, it's what they're doing with women. You know, it's what they're doing with Saddleback. You know, it's protect the institution at all costs from harm, even though um, our stance and how we're handling it and what we're doing it. A large portion of those folks in leadership know it's a shaky issue. Many of them know they're wrong. But uh, it resonates. It rallies the base. Women misogyny, patriarchy rallies their base and brings them together, which they need for the organization to survive. Being racist, being anti-CRT, being um, the type of people who will unironically use the word woke, rallies their base who by and large is conservative, moving towards fundamentalist Republican, who consumes large quantities of Fox News and they recognize what resonates and what doesn't and they have to keep <clears throat> the angst, the anger, the frustration white hot. It's why they focus on women and CRT and these political issues rather than focusing on sexual abuse. It doesn't rally the base. It doesn't resonate. It has no yield on return organizationally 
spiritually, it does. But again, the organization, not really a spiritual organization. <laughs> that I will say though goes for any organization, any denomination, you know, and I think at first that's off-putting to people, but it's really not whenever we step back and we say, what is the church? Who does Jesus save? Who is redeemed? You know, the church is not a building. It's not an institution. We all know that. It's a people. And so the organization is not promised by God that the gates of hell will not prevail. You know, the organization is not redeemed, but we make these organizations people and then feel as though they have to be protected because whenever we read the word church or hear the word church, that is what is being spoken about. And so it's not a spiritual organization. It is an institution. It is not an organism. You, Matt, are an organism. I am an organism. The Southern Baptist Convention, other denominations are not organisms. They are institutions. Jesus saves organisms, not institutions. Sometimes institutions need to die, especially institutions <laughs> that rather than doing these spiritual things like handle and manage sexual abuse, whether or not it rallies the base versus these other things that are wrong, the way we treat women, the way we treat non-white people, et cetera, et cetera, it's got to stop. It's wrong. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, these organizations, you're right, they protect all, all the time, especially the, the abuse things. I mean, I think that's why we see um, this abuse perpetuated because we got to protect the institution. I mean, we've seen it in non- religious settings as well. You know? Yeah, even in small churches. I, I mean, churches yeah. do this, you know, nonprofit. Uh, well, even third, like the big third party, one, like you know, Larry Nasser at Michigan State, you know, uh, the guy at Penn State, right? Yeah. Like it was all about protecting the institution rather than, you know, addressing major issues that were happening. And we go so far in those situations to protect the institution that we put the people who were involved in positions of leadership in our country, like Congress. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to name names <laughs> for the gentleman from Ohio, <laughs> but it just it just goes to show you, you know, abuse yeah. someone sexual or, or hide sexual abuse. We'll go so far to to we'll go so far to ignore it and avoid it that we'll put you in Congress so that you can make laws. It just the, the church does this as as well, both on the macro and denominations and in the micro and how we manage difficulties and issues and problems, you know, from boards to pastors to um, congregants, the, the same danger is, is there always that we will put the institution above the person. Uh, and at that point, we no longer are operating in a spiritually God-honoring way. Uh, we're operating in a dishonoring way to God and to people. And it's dangerous ground. Yeah. So um, we all need to participate in Lent, Matt, and get right. Yeah. Yeah. This is our 40 days to fix all of this. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think as an organization, if you're leading like as an organization, you, you got to You got to put, especially in a religious church setting, you've got to put people first ahead of the organization. Um, and I, and then you also have to really do some soul searching, the repentance thing. Like I, I think, you know, we talked about the revival last week. Um, and if, if there's revival, like there needs to be repentance. And I think organizations need to, to do self-reflection on these patriarchy, power abuse, all of these issues. And whether or not you're complementarian or not, or whatever, egalitarian or not, or whatever, like the way we're, we treat women needs to be addressed. Um, and the way we talk about women, even that gentleman that was on your board saying, you know, I'm fine as long as a woman doesn't have power over a man. Like that kind of language is awful. No matter where you're at theologically, like that sh you shouldn't be talking like that. Um, and so it, to me, that starts there. Um, but organizations, to your point, we've, we've hit it, is they don't want to do that. That's too hard. It might cost them momentum. It might cost them votes. It might cost them money. Yeah, um, right. I mean, I mean there's there's yeah. the issue. You know, we don't want to. As a pastor, I understand this because boards have this conversation. Pastors have this conversation, and they need to have this conversation. We don't want to do this or admit this because it opens us up to be liable. You know, we we are we are exposed potentially legally. We're exposed ethically. We're we're exposed morally. Um, to the congregation, you know, to a lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we're transparent uh, or if we do the what really should be done in this situation. So maybe what's the second or third thing that doesn't open us up to so much liability, but also we can explain away as being biblical or, or hide enough. And, and I just at the end of the day, y'all, you're. Okay, worried about exposing yourself legally, but you're not worried about exposing yourself spiritually. Like it just, you know, whenever boards and pastors and, and I, I've been in there and I've been in these conversations, I've personally made the wrong decisions in moments on these on these things. And admittedly, whenever we're willing to put the legal ramifications above the moral or spiritual ramifications of something. In that moment, we've lost our we've lost our testimony. We've lost our witness. Um, frankly, I think we've lost our um, reason for existence as a church. We've closed the doors. You know, you've ceased to be any heavenly good. Uh, and there are sadly pastors, boards, denominations, churches who have ceased. I think to be any heavenly good and, and may even be um, working for their own kingdom uh, because mm -hmm. they've prioritized the wrong things and it's not who we should be. 